Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're excited to have Dr. Cornell West, Professor of the Practice of Public Philosophy at Harvard University. If this is your first time joining us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a program where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on topics at the intersection of education and culture. As always, we at CLT greatly appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. Today will be part one of our visit with Dr. West. Part two will be releasing next week. Now, without further ado, let's get on to the conversation. Welcome back to Anchor, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Today we have a guest who needs no introduction, the one and only Dr. Cornell West. Uh, Dr. West, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for being on the program. Thank you, my dear brother. You know, I look forward to talking to you, though. I think you've been doing some very important work in trying to keep alive the uh, the grand legacies of Athens and Jerusalem and Paris and London and New York. And, uh, of course, we embrace every city around the world. But at this point, it's a matter of trying to hold on to uh, excellence, what the Greeks call arate. And we'll say more about how that connects to uh the different critiques of injustice, critiques of exploitation, critiques of oppression that also tries to make sure that each and every one of us, no matter who we are, color, gender, national identity, that our lives can flower and flourish. Now, Dr. West, we'd love to start off kind of at the very beginning. Uh, I'd love to hear a bit about your early days, uh, what kind of school you went to as a young boy, and, and what kind of drew you into the life of ideas. Well, I'm very much the uh, second son of Clifton and Irene. I'll never, ever, ever be the human being that they they, they exemplified it in, before my very eyes. I'm a product of Shiloh Baptist Church, so we were deeply tied to a Palestinian Jew named Jesus, uh, fundamentally committed to a deep, deep love of truth, of stranger, of neighbor, and uh, grew up on the chocolate side of Sacramento in the ghetto, Glen Elder for the first eight years. In the last two years, we moved over to a, uh, a more integrated context in Southland Park Drive. But I started reading uh, in the bookmobile. I mean, we didn't really have access to the main library, so they had a bookmobile. And um, just fell in love with books, learning, language, literacy, and Mainly fell in love with Kierkegaard. I mean, Soreen Kierkegaard was my first real uh, introduction to the Western uh, European intellectual tradition. And I remain a kind of card-carrying Kierkegaardian with a uh, blues twist and a, and a black sensibility to this very day, my brother. Uh, what was it about Kierkegaard that captured your attention? Intellectual honesty. You know, at last one of the last essays he wrote, How Come Honesty is Not a Christian Virtue? It's a wonderful uh, essay that Rabbi Abraham jo- Joshua Heschel makes much much of in his last book, Passion for Truth. But but Kierkegaard, like Nietzsche, uh, he has an intellectual integrity, intellectual honesty that generates the kind of sense of being unsettled. You know that wonderful phrase that uh, Alfred North Whitehead has in his Adventures of Ideas, noble discontent. 
noble discontent. Mm. And this is one of the great contributions of the legacies of Athens and Jerusalem. And Kierkegaard embodies that. He's got a discontent, a dissatisfaction, but a willingness to wrestle with his understanding of what it means to be human. Now, he's deeply shaped by, you know, this Danish context and European context and so on. And so he's not in conversation with the best of Africa, the way we should, the best of Asia, the way we should, the best of Latin America, the way we should. But he's in context, he's in conversation with the best of his context, and it is still a very rich one. And Kierkegaard uh, becomes, for me, uh, indispensable in any understanding of individuality, what it really means to be the unique singular creatures that we are yearning and hungry for structures of meaning and structures of feeling in order to be decent human beings before the worms get our bodies. Uh, and he dies in his early 40s, as you know. Yeah. But there's nobody like him. And he's Christian the way I am. But I mean, you know, Nietzsche's not a Christian and not. I go to bed with Nietzsche the same way I go to bed with Kierkegaard in a certain sense. I just end up with Christian conclusions. But the important thing is, is intellectual wrestling, the intellectual integrity, honesty, the intellectual conscience that Kierkegaard's uh, work represents for me. Now, uh, on our very first episode ever of Anchored, we had your good friend, uh, Dr. Robbie, Robbie P. George, uh, as a guest. Uh, and he told this beautiful story of your friendship and how it came to be. Uh, can you comment on that and, and y'all's relationship? Yeah, you know, Brother Rob, he's, he's, he's uh, my very dear, dear brother. We've been uh, brothers now for, oh my God, almost 20 years, going back to the uh, Princeton years, as it were. But no, Robbie is somebody who, for me, uh, I revel in his humanity. We have magnificent times together teaching uh, courses on on great books from Martin Luther King Jr. to Saint Augustine, uh, and it, it's it's an example though of something that ought to be commonplace, but these days it's much mm -hmm. too rare. Which is the ways in which the love and respect that we have for each other is not reducible to ideological agreement. Yeah, that very deep friendship and brotherhood is not reducible to just. A, uh, coming together on public policy. So we go at each other tooth and nail. He's a conservative brother. Uh, uh, and I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm known to being a kind of a, you know, leftist. I don't like the categories, but uh, <laughs> I certainly, certainly I, I consider myself on the left if you use that spectrum, uh, uh, which is the commonplace these days. But we, we, we also have a lot in common that we have a fundamental commitment to civil liberties and personal. Mm -hmm liberty uh so that cancel culture so that shutting people down so that foreclosing conversation undercutting dialogue is something that we fight intensely and he he's got a concern about poverty he's got much more market-based concerns i've got a deep concern about poverty and i'm open to markets but i think government's going to have to play a role in that so we've got some you know struggles same-sex marriage abortion we, we 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 fight over these things but uh, we take a bullet for each other. You know, we, 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 we're, we're partners, we're friends at that deep, deep level. And our families are as well. And so uh, he's been a blessing in my life. He's been a joy in my life. And uh, it's sad these days, though, that, you know, the very fact that you could have such a close friend and brother 
across political and ideological lines makes you a, a rare couple. People say, this is an odd couple. I <laughs> yeah. say, odd couple? Jesus Christ. Have we reached that point where people make you look at, look at Lasky and Hayek at LSE. You know, they, they broke bread every other day. Harold Lasky, leading Democratic Socialist, Frederick Hayek, the road to serfdom, you know, and Lasky's telling him, there's more than one road to serfdom. <laughs> more than one road. Oh, yes, you might be right about the centralized uh, power when it comes to the public sphere. What about centralized power in the private sphere, Frederick? That could be a certain <laughs> different kind of serfdom. Well, I see what you're saying, Harold. Let's continue with our tea and engage in our discussions and dialogues. I'm reading R.H. Tawney, and I'm also reading Edmund Burke. Yes, they go hand in hand. Burke and Hazlitt go hand in hand, and Tawney goes hand in hand with, 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 with Hayek. <clears throat> so that we're talking about cacophony of voices. And this is very important for any serious quest for truth, goodness, beauty, and for me as a Christian, for God. You've got to have that robust dialogue. And it's got to be across cultures and civilizations. There's no doubt about that. But that's also deeply deeply tied to the best of the West. I mean, Toynbee himself, he's got over 21 civilizations, right? Now, I'm curious to know, has there ever been a, an instance that you can think of where maybe you have changed uh, Robbie's thinking or he's changed yours? Well, I think he's come closer to me. He's very much tied to the Thomistic tradition of Thomas Aquinas. I think I've got some Kierkegaardian elements now shot through his sensibility. <laughs> and he's got me to appreciate Aquinas much more. Oh. Uh, I tell him there's a Kierkegaardian moment at the end of Aquinas. You remember when Aquinas uh, has this mystical experience and says, oh, my God, both sumas are nothing but straw in light of this mystical experience. I said, ooh. Sound. <laughs> and he's talking about something about appropriating a truth rather than just trying to understand it in forms of propositions and argumentation. There's something deeper here. It's Pascalian, it's Kierkegaardian, it's Les Shestoff. I mean, there's a whole tradition of deeply, deeply religious folk, uh, and in this sense, Christians, who are highly suspicious of just the words. The words is made flesh. What does that mean? Word made flesh. Well, John T. Hamilton and a host of others have taught us that uh, uh, there's something that's so much deeper, more vital and vibrant than just any kind of dogma, doctrine or propositions and sentences in the kind of life that we live. And so Robbie and I go back and forth. But Robbie still got that neo-Aristotelian sensibility as the, uh, the Catholic that he is. And I can appreciate that. Aristotle is, is, is so rich. But like, you know, sometimes deeply wrong. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about an image C.S. Lewis used to describe friendship, uh, the mm. friendship, you know, where, where romantic love, the posture is looking at each other, gazing into each other's eyes. The posture of friendship is you're looking at something else, but you're looking at the same thing, something beautiful. And you're both saying, wow, you see that, too. Uh, for you and, and Brother George, is that is that the classics? Is that the yeah, that's a beautiful way of putting it, though, brother. That's a beautiful way of putting it. I think I think that's I think that's true. Now remember now the difference between talent and genius, though. Hmm. Where talent is, you're able to hit the bullseye that other people find it hard to hit. Talent is the ability to hit a bullseye others can't see. And with hmm. Robbie, he and I together do 
help us see things we would not even see by ourselves. Cooperation in the dialogue that is so very, very rich. And in the end, this is, you know, this is Henry James, this is Joseph Conrad. The end is to be able to see, to teach us to see. You remember that wonderful line that uh, Conrad has of Robert Louis Stevenson, where he says, any theory that disables us from seeing is not kind. Mm -hmm. I would say the same thing about any method, any framework, any paradigm. I mean, that's precisely what Chesterton understands Mm. orthodoxy to be. It's not a guarding of tradition. It's teaching us to see things we would not see, but you have to have some some grounds from which you see. So orthodoxy is just the ground from which you see, the stand, the bedrock position that you take, but you're able to see things that others don't see, and therefore orthodoxy has a very subversive in the name. It has a dynamism. It has an unbelievable complexity to it. So it's not narrow tradition. It's the exact opposite, Chesterton says. And he's right about that. He's right about that. Orthodoxy is the one book I go back to and read almost Oh, you know what I'm talking about. I do, I do indeed. Oh my God. Uh, Keith, man, he's, uh, he's off the chart. He really is. Dr. West, here at CLT, we, we have a reading culture and, and we're fighting to recover this vision for education that, that is not utilitarian. It seems that mainstream ed has kind of been hijacked by this utilitarian philosophy that we just use education uh, rather than being formed and shaped by it. Um, and as we were discussing your interview and you coming on the show, we, we've been thinking about something you said, it's really heavy and pr- profound, uh, that the point of an education uh, is to learn how to die or learn how to die well. Uh, what do you mean when you say this? Yeah, that um, is very, comes right out of Plato, though philosophy itself is a meditation on and a preparation for death, not just physical mm-hmm. death, but a form of death in which you radically call into question certain assumptions and presuppositions you have. And when you do that, when you let them go, it's a form of death in order for you to be able to live more intensely, more critically, more compassionately. So that for Plato, you remember the Republic, the Paideia, the deep education, its aim is the turning of the soul. And the turning of the soul is grounded in the formation of attention. You learn to attend to the things that matter away from the superficial thing. For him, it's from the world of becoming to the world of being. But any framework is one in which for education, you've got to be able to attend to the things that matter. Simone Vey says, you can tell a person who they are in terms of what, what they attend to. Very important. And you know, Tim Wu's new book on the attention merchant with the role of commodification, modern technology, trying to distract, distractions by distractions, for distractions, that wonderful line in Eliot's, mm-hmm. Eliot's Four Quartets, to keep the distraction away rather than tending to the things that matter, tied to the cultivation of a critical consciousness and the maturation of a loving soul. And so for me to learn how to die is grounded on those three pillars, the three pillars of Paideia for what? For the turning of a soul now, but it's not indoctrination so that, you know, it's not the turning of the soul to my views, you know, revolutionary Christian legacy, Martin Luther King Jr. Dorothy day and so forth, because the end and aim is for people to really to follow the anthem of, uh, of of black people, which is lift every voice. 
voice, to find your voice, not an echo. It doesn't say lift every echo. That's not the songs. Mm. The song is lift every voice. And if you're going to be a jazz man or one, a blues woman, you got to find your voice, not your echo. You're not a copy. You're not an imitation of others, but you can't find your voice without being grounded in tradition, mm. grounded in legacies, grounded in heritages, you see. Okay, this, you see this brother right here? Hans-Georg Gottemer. Studied with him for a whole year in 1975. His book, Truth and Method, published in 1960, is one of the great classics of, of, of 20th century philosophy. And he taught us traditions are inescapable and unavoidable. It's a question not whether you're going to work in a tradition, it's which one. Oh. Well, I have no tradition at all. Well, that's the tradition of the new. It's going to be thin. <laughs> going to be very, very thin, and you're going to deceive yourself. You'll be using a language that you didn't create. You're going to be using frameworks you didn't create. There's always antecedent conditions and circumstances under which we all come to terms. Oh. And this is this is what Gadamer was trying to get us to understand in order to be more innovative and creative. But Gadamer also comes out of a legacy of Jerusalem, which is not just argumentation. But it's a life lived. It's like the conclusion of a practical Aristotelian syllogism. You remember what Aristotle says? The conclusion, not a proposition. It's action, deed, life lived, or what these days people would call practice or praxis in the Marxist tradition. Dr. West, you referenced uh, Martin Luther King Jr. a minute ago. And of course, we're recording this episode with you on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And we, we actually started off uh, this morning as a company reading his last sermon uh, that he he gave on April 3rd, 1968. Uh, and it was really powerful, actually. He It's full of these references to ancient Greece and Athens and Plato and Aristotle and Euripides. And and um, and then, of course, the next day he's assassinated. Well, what has MLK meant to you in your own scholarship and in your own ministry in the world? You know, I view each and every person as uh, someone made an image of God who's fallible and finite and and, and fallen. Uh, so he's a great cracked vessel who constitutes a wave in a great ocean of a tradition of a people who have been hated for 400 years and yet dish out love. Mm. Wow. Terrorized for 400 years and still dish out freedom fighters, traumatized for 400 years, but dish out wounded healers rather than wounded herders. And that's a wow. choice you make. It's not a functional skin pigmentation. It's a human choice to be made. Martin Luther King Jr. decided to be a love warrior. He decided to be a freedom fighter. He decided to be a wounded healer in light of his understanding of his calling. And you all know those two great essays of Max Weber on vocation, 1917 and 1919, science as vocation, politics as vocation. He had a particular vocation and calling that was tied to this love, this freedom, this healing. And he, he he sets a high standard. I mean, he, he you know, he's like he's like Homer, he's like Goethe, he's like Dante, he's like uh, uh, Nietzsche, anybody in the great tradition uh, of the West. These are levels of standards of excellence. Mm. And the excellence is not in terms of just being smart. No, it's in terms of putting their whole self in their thinking and living, trying to wrestle with what it means to be human and passing it on to the next generation. 
Dr. West, uh, recently we had on the program Megan Cox Gurdon uh, from the Wall Street Journal, uh, and she wrote an editorial discussing this disrupt text movement uh, that we were talking about before the program, which is gaining a ton of traction. Uh, this movement is it describes itself as a crowdsource grassroots effort by teachers for teachers to challenge the traditional canon in order to create a more inclusive, representative, and equitable language arts curriculum. Uh, teachers in this movement had a Massachusetts school remove Homer's odyssey uh, from the curriculum. Uh, you know, certainly efforts to bring literature that is more representative is certainly worthwhile, uh, but to what degree is, is a wholesale exclusion of the works of the Western canon maybe misguided? Well, I mean, it, it, it's a sign of the spiritual decay and the moral decline and the very deep uh, intellectual a narrowness that is running afoot and amok in the culture. Uh, you see, we, we have to draw a distinction between Western civilization, Western philosophy, and Western crimes. The crimes go hand in hand with certain philosophy, not all of them. Certain elements of the civilization, not all of them. The same Western civilization, the same Western philosophies that could produce a Karl Marx, for example, or a C.L.R. James, mm -hmm. one of the geniuses coming out of the Caribbean, deeply marked as black, beautiful in his own way, but knowing that he's part of the legacy, his great work on Herman Melville, another example in this regard, you see. So, but what has happened, though, brother, uh, sadly, is that the crimes have become so central in terms of conceptions of the West, that it's hard to keep track of the best of the West, oh. you see. And, and so that's why we have to be vigilant. We have to be very, very intentional and deliberate in this distinction. Lorraine Hansberry, one of the great uh, playwrights and literary artists uh, in America, born South Side of Chicago, she used to give these lectures on the Western crimes versus Western ideals. When I, when I first told you uh, this particular story of the Massachusetts school banning the Odyssey, you, you physically kind of winced. Uh, it seems like you, you don't like this move. But it's just so sad, though, man. You know, it's, it, it's like uh, you, know, you want to be a jazz musician and you want to ban Louis Armstrong. It, 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 it makes, it, it, why would you disarm yourself like that? I mean, Homer himself not just in his own works, and as you know, it's a controversy whether he wrote them or it's a combination, it's oral tradition and so forth of Perry and others going all the way back to uh, the early part of the 20th century in the scholarship. But the text that we have, the Iliad, the Odyssey, they are not just foundational, but they provide such profound understandings of what it is to live in a world of the survival of the strongest, the slickest, mm. and, 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 and conceptions of, of, of what it means to be a person at a heroic level. And they require critique, but it's so rich in terms of generating conversation. Yeah. And of course, there's no Plato without Homer. I mean, so much of Plato's whole project is mm. to displace Homer. So that when you talk about Homer, you're not just talking about one individual or one figure, you're talking about a whole rich tradition of conversation. 
if Homer drops out, does that mean that when Plato is calling into question Homer as a source of paideia and looking for a new discourse called philosophy and you end up with the beginnings mm -hmm. of philosophy in the West? Is that to be pushed aside too? Because you can't get to that without dealing with Homer because mm -hmm. Homer is the very object of the critique. And Homer's always there. He never goes away. That's that traditional quarrel between philosophy and poetry, 605B, 607B5 in that last book of Republic, right? That traditional quarrel of philosophy and poetry is at the very center of some of the most powerful reflections on what it means to be human in the West that has implications for those outside of the West, in Africa, in Asia, and others, because why? Because they are conversant with Plato. You don't have to be Greek to be conversant with Plato. And grow up in Uganda and be deeply moved by Plato. You can grow up in South Africa and Dostoevsky will blow your mind. The same is true. You can grow up in Moscow and have Nelson Mandela's example blow your mind. You can grow up in, 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 in Tokyo and having Gugi blow your mind. It's a human affair. It's, it's humanistic all the way down. But we have to acknowledge that... Uh, you know, the hypocrisy of any civilization, hypocrisy of any empire can can discourage people from making the distinction between the crimes and the ideals. And there's been so much hypocrisy in the West that people want to highlight just the hypocrisy and the crimes and throw out the baby with the bathwater. Now, Dr. West, I, I'd love for you to speak about how we got to this point. You know, when, I, when I'm looking at these conversations on Twitter, uh, you know, the, the, the teachers were not just approving of canceling the odyssey uh, they were downright giddy they were thrilled they felt like they had had made a, an accomplishment where are we where, when mainstream educators at publicly funded schools uh, are celebrating when we've banned as you've described it you know one of the most central epics well you know when i talked about spiritual decay and the um, the more decline in the intellectual narrowness i'm really talking about uh, uh, the ways in which Manichaean views of the world proliferate when you deny complexity, humanity, nuance, ambiguity. And part of the problem in the United States, even though it's now internationalized, is that we've got this addiction to innocence. You see, you think that somehow you're innocent. And see, anytime you make an appeal to innocence, you're on your way to a mannequin view of the world. And by mannequin, what I mean is all the good's on one side. All the bad is on the other side. You're on the good side. You can do no wrong, which means you don't take any responsibility, which means you live in a state of denial. And uh, it's, you know, America at its worst, you know, we are a civilization that has grown powerful and rich without growing up. It's Peter Pan-like, it's Disneyland-like. And what's distinctive about being childish as opposed to childlike, childlike is very important, awe and wonder. Childish, what's, what, what's difficult for Peter Pan's sensibility is the mannequin view. And so what happens is you get these educators who want to be on the right side, who want to be on the pure side, who want to be on the good side. And that means for them, siding with the folk who rightly are talking about Western crimes, who rightly are talking about Western hypocrisy, but wrongly believe 
that the alternative is to ban any connection with the crimes or ban any connection with the hypocrisy. You say, well, what, 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 what's left? Because if, if, if once you make the move that somehow you're pure, then either everybody's pure or everybody's so tainted that you can't move forward. You're paralyzed. You're debilitated. You're discombobulated. And uh, if there's anything that we learn from, you know, the Shakespeare's and the Chekhov's is that in the face of an unflinching candidness about evil or grimness or darkness, you still muster the courage to engage in a quest for truth and beauty and goodness. You persevere and endure in the midst of the ambiguity, the uncertainty, the nuance of what Samuel Beckett called the mess, the mess. To be in space and time is being the mess. I call it just being in the funk, but that's just a different, the different language of talking about our humanity always tied to what, what Keats would call negative capability. What does it mean to be in the midst of doubts and uncertainties without any irritable reaching after fact or reason? That's the key. That's the great genius after Shakespeare in the English language and poetry in his 20s, right? He died at 25. But that's a very difficult condition to be in. You can't be adolescent. You can't be childish. And you can't be Peter Pan to be in negative capability. You had this education for adults. You got to grow up. I'm interested to see... Um how you would kind of interpret uh, how how a crisis in education uh, maybe had some impact on the crisis uh, that we all experienced in 2020. Uh, I think it was this kind of weird combination of a, a pandemic, isolation, uh, and then we combine that with, with what happened in Minnesota with George Floyd and, and the civil unrest after that. It is the current tensions, is the current civil unrest, is it connected to a crisis in education? Um, can the classics help to give us a, a renewed ground of unity? Well, I think our crisis is so deep because we've got a you know ecological catastrophe. We've got a possible nuclear catastrophe. We've got, econo- we've got a, a, a ecological and economic catastrophe and a political catastrophe in terms of leadership. But in the end, it's fundamentally a spiritual catastrophe, you see. So it's not just that... Uh, you know, it, it's a nice thing to read the classics because they will blow your mind. No, our crisis is so profound that we've got to mobilize all of the spiritual, intellectual, moral resources we can to create the kind of human beings of courage and vision mm. and civic virtue in order to respond to the crisis. And there's the connection between the massive failure of of, of schooling, I don't even call it education. In some ways, it's just schooling. You know, it's just yeah. acquisition of skills, acquisition of certain labels, acquisition of certain jargon. Because education, going back to what we said before, is paideia, right? It's a transformative process of that attention and maturation and cultivation. Mm-hmm. And when you have that in place, then you've got spiritually intact, morally equipped human beings and that's at a different level you see that's that's yeah. a very very different level 
and, and with the prevalence of the greed, you know, and the contempt, the arrogance, the indifference, the callousness, you end up with very much where we are today. The inability to have trust of each other, the unbelievable uh, uh, contempt that so many of our fellow citizens have for elites because the elites are associated with certain liberalism and neoliberalism that's been so hypocritical and so arrogant and condescending vis-a-vis -vis ordinary people, obsessed with money, obsessed with status, obsessed with spectacle. All of those are spiritually thin and morally empty, and yet they've become per pervasive. So the, here, here comes, now here comes Homer, here comes Dante, here comes Shakespeare, here comes Flaubert. Here comes Dickens. Here comes Tony Morrison. Here comes, we can go on, Rushdie and so forth and so on, right? These folk are coming along saying what? Well, we've got some difficult questions that don't fit into this Manichaean framework mm. that's going to so deeply unsettle you that you're going to have to learn how to die in order to learn how to live. Now, learn how to die is going to be a difficult thing. It's not mechanical. It's not, alg it's not algorithm. You're going to have to put something on the line. <laughs> Your conception of who you are, you're gonna to have to unsettle yourself. You're gonna to have to have those wonderful experiences of intellectual vertigo. <laughs> you know, I spent uh, four years in, in a Protestant seminary, and one of my one of my great takeaways was uh, just how how different uh, education was for almost any other generation, going back to the, the Greek Greek fathers and 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 maybe even ancient Judaism. Uh, that it was always exactly the way you're describing, that the whole point was that it was formative, that it was supposed, I think the way Frederick Douglass described it, the, the, the purpose of education is liberation, it's transformation, it's freedom in the truth. Um, that view of education um, is completely unfamiliar to you know the, the, the majority of mainstream educators right now. Um, I, I've had conversations like this with friends in, in public schools, they're like, that, that all sounds strange and new, um, mainstream yeah. education is it is it is it beyond recovery? What do you what do you uh, recommend to parents listening to this podcast that want to give their kids the best education? Well, you you want to tell them that uh, you know there's there's something in the traditions that have shaped them that tilt them toward what William James called a habitual vision of greatness. And that you want your children not simply to be highly successful in terms of doing well, but you want them to be great. And spiritual and moral greatness are not the same as financial success at all. And in the end, there is a joy as well as anguish in that habitual vision of greatness that is very different than the titillation and stimulation that goes with being highly successful, financially prosperous and so forth and so on. And it takes us right back where we began. It has something to do with that fundamental terrifying question of wrestling with what it means to be human, what it means to be human, you see. Uh, and each and every one of us, you know, with our children, we, we want them to be the best that they can be in light of their uniqueness and singularity yeah. and the finding of their voices. But we want them to be great. And greatness has nothing to do in the end with 
just Alexander the Great. No, that's about conquering. We we talking about Paideia. We talking about education. We talking about Socrates. Socrates versus Alexander the Great. Mm. Jesus versus Genghis Kong and Napoleon. Interesting. Interesting. Martin Luther King Jr. versus the head of the Pentagon or some grand military uh, general or whatever it is, you see. Uh, and and that and, and that itself, you know, opens a conversation because people there's there, there's a role for Alexander in history. Why? Because most of human history is what he was about. It's about domination, conquering. It's about subordinating people. It's about power, power, power. We can't escape that. That's very much what human history has been. But here comes Homer and company saying, "Oh, what are you going to do with the tears of Achilles?" What about that friendship? Ooh, what about Priam? What is his relation to Priam? Ooh, something else is going on and just power, power, power. Here comes Plato. Socrates, tell Glucon and Endymatus, that younger generation, why Thrasymachus is wrong. Might doesn't make right. Greed is not good. Power doesn't define reality. Socrates, please tell us. Well, I'm not sure I got time. Please, please take your time, Socrates. Respond to Thrasymachus, given all of his intensity and given all of his unbelievable energy. Okay, let me tell you why Alexander the Great is not the sole model. Let me tell you why even Achilles doesn't go far enough. There's a conception of greatness that has to do with intellectual integrity. Let me show you how this operates show you how this can be done follow my argumentation and of course it's in the form of poetic prose too so when he's banning most of the poets it's in poetic prose itself so things get complicated here Ooh, he loves poetry he's writing poetry but he sees the power of poetry disruptive of the hierarchical society he wants that's part of the conversation too and so in that way I think the, the parents themselves would say, you know, even when you're talking about your kids b- being X and Y, you're talking about you too. You're not a spectator. You were a participant in this formation of your soul. You were a participant in this attempt to be a certain kind of human being before the worms get you. And not to decide is to decide. You can't be a spectator. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with friends and colleagues. Please join us next week for part two of this conversation with Dr. Cornell West. CLT, reconnecting knowledge and virtue.